Dartmouth Hitchcock Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of COVID-19 in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm one of your hosts, Amog Karnik. I'm also joined by my co-hosts, Jose Mercado and Marshall Ward. We're happy to be joined today by Dr. Antonia Altamare. Dr. Altamare is an infectious disease specialist and the hospital epidemiologist at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Let's get things started. So Antonia, to start things off, this has been a year where we've heard a lot from epidemiologists. Would you be able to just take a moment to describe what being an epidemiologist actually means and what it takes to become one? Yeah, sure. I've certainly been asked this question a lot this year. First of all, it's a hard word to say, hard word to spell, and then no one really knows exactly what it means. But essentially, it is a branch of medicine where a person studies how disease interacts with the population, whether that be incidence, prevalence, outcomes. And in this particular position in hospital epidemiology, it's really looking at hospital-acquired infections, infections you get during hospitalization or looking at what's happening external to our hospital as far as infectious threats that could potentially be a problem within our hospital or within our population. And so a lot of an epidemiologist's job is to really keep an eye on all these things, track diseases really well, but also institute all the policies and procedures that go with preventing these things, because you want to be really proactive and not reactive in in containing these infections. And really, it's all with patient safety and, and quality of care in mind and has become a huge focus for kind of the accrediting bodies for hospitals. So the Joint Commission requires institutions to have an infection control program to do exactly that and actually gets penalized if you're not meeting certain quality metrics. So have to pay monetary penalties if you're not, you're not looking good from the quality perspective. So the grand majority of my job up until this year was really trying to get people to wash their hands and prevent those line infections, prevent those caudies, prevent C. diff and surgical site infections. And then we had a smattering of of more exciting stuff like scabies outbreaks and influenza season that comes every year. It's something we anticipate, but it's an epidemic we have to deal with on a yearly basis. And then of course there was Ebola and a bunch of other stuff. So it's a very fluid and dynamic and exciting field of medicine, but you never know what's going to come. And the COVID pandemic was certainly just one of many things. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of the COVID pandemic, it kind of, I'm sure, pushed a lot of your other efforts and work aside that you mentioned. Now that maybe we're more familiar with COVID, thinking back, how did all your work beforehand, do you feel like, prepared you for this particular epidemic that we've experienced? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, Looking back at Ebola, COVID was a little bit of PTSD for me, but we did so much incredible work in preparing for Ebola back then that we had the the playbook we needed to seamlessly transition to COVID, obviously with other new challenges. But even before Ebola, we had an epidemic response plan that's been in place since SARS, which we've been working off of and updating and reviewing on a yearly basis as part of our subcommittee within infection control that was responsible for readiness and preparedness for epidemic threat. So when Ebola hit, we actually had that at least in place, but there were so many new things we had to deal with with Ebola that actually set in motion quite a few new policies, procedures, new committees that continued to meet 
on a monthly basis for years after Ebola had kind of reared its head. And that committee continued to meet till this day, till this current pandemic, uh, modifying procedures, keeping an eye on global epidemic threats to modify our policies accordingly. And in fact, did a lot of work around contagious respiratory illnesses when MERS was a real concern. And we had quite a few MERS rollouts at this hospital that had to activate our policies, activate our care team. And so we felt pretty confident with the basis we were working with. And so COVID just threw a whole other level of challenge at us. And that was more truly the challenges that came with that were a lot of the unknowns about how this virus was going to act and the sheer lack of guidelines in the moment. You know, there a lot has been built out since then, at least from the CDC and state perspective, but, but in the moment working uh, with a lot of unknowns. And then to compound that, a huge problem with supply chain that we never could have anticipated. And it wasn't just about PPE, but it started snowballing into all other facets of life-sustaining measures. So ventilator parts and all sorts of things you would never expect or have to think you need to worry about. And that was a true worry. So there were certainly new challenges that came with this pandemic. Thanks, Antonia. I think that's great to hear how some of the past experience has prepared us for COVID, which is what I wanted to ask you. You know, I was hoping you could share some of the insights around this um, past year. I don't know if you had any favorite memories or are able to share some of the worst experiences and how this may have affected you or changed some of your perspectives? Yeah. So um, coming up on the year anniversary did give me time to reflect with, again, some angst around what happened a year ago. And I'd say, you know, one of the most memorable moments was sitting in Concord for a state meeting with the health department and the governor with our CEO, Joanne Conroy, and Ben Chan when he pulled me aside right before the meeting started to tell me, our first positive case is your case. And I just felt like I wanted to throw up for the next entire hour I had to sit through this meeting knowing that I needed to get back to Dartmouth and I needed to convene the ICS team. And all I could think about was all the work that needed to get done. And I knew what had to happen. We just need to make it happen. I still get palpitations thinking about that moment, about that feeling of my heart dropping, but also saying, we suspected this, we were just waiting for the confirmation, but now we have work to do and we need to get to work. That was one of my scary moments, just the beginning of it. I would say just tongue in cheek, the worst memory was probably the sheer volume of email that would come to my in-basket on an hourly basis. <laughs> Did not know that an inbox could hold the amount of emails that could come through. Trying to manage that obviously was insane amongst everything else. I think some of the most memorable, really looking back, makes me smile moments was the team that I had to work with, the collaboration and the experts we had in that ICS room and that ICS team that kept this hospital running to the best of its ability and kept our staff as safe as we could while getting through and keeping ourselves open for almost full capacity the whole time with only having to, you know, scale back for a little while. But to truly keep a hospital running while other hospitals were shutting down was 
was really truly attributable to everyone behind the scenes kind of making this happen. But I do have to give a special shout out for kind of what made me smile the most throughout all of this was my daily showtime with Ed Marins. This by far was kind of, it was our escape. It was our retreat for all of 10 to 20 minutes. We got to turn our pagers off, turn our emails off, turn our phones off. We couldn't have anything on. And we just had so much fun kind of helping to educate and keep people up to date on all the work that was happening behind the scenes. So as much as we didn't like all the attention and all the makeup and the stage lighting and our and our crew, but I had so much fun in that room with the media people and I cannot thank them enough for making us do that because it really kind of kept us going and it kept everyone informed. So I'd have to say that thank you, Ed, for really making me get through this. It was really a lot of fun. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think that those are some of the things that we just don't realize. So really appreciate uh, all the work that you have done to ease the burden on our frontline uh, healthcare workers. Going back to Marshall's question about your role as the epidemiologist, for our listeners, what do you think would be some of the most important lessons to share from the past years that that could really help us do better looking forward into the years to come? So I think, as always, you have to be flexible. I think, you know, when we have certain policies and procedures, but it doesn't fit every mold. And I think we have learned as an institution and people have learned how to care for patients in a very different way than what we're used to. And we had to pivot very quickly, whether that was our new universal PPE, which we've never had to do before, whether that's providing telehealth to patients in their homes in order to keep them safe, keep us safe. I think it's having that flexibility and that acceptability and trust in the system that really got us through. And I think continual reflection and improvement is huge. And the fact that we've continued to do that in the years coming up to COVID because of all the lessons we learned from Ebola, all the lessons we've learned from MERS and all the other respiratory illnesses and other, you know, outbreak infections that could be threats all along the way. I think we also learned a ton from this one that is now allowing us to look back and say, okay, we've gotten through this and we continue to get through this, but what do we need to do to be more prepared, even more prepared for that next thing that comes? And so constant reevaluation is key. I think in medicine, as always, you can't just do something and say, okay, I'm done. I don't have to worry about that anymore. There's always something more to learn and improve upon on the horizon. And I think that's been instrumental to getting us to the point that we're in now. Awesome. Thanks, Antonia. I wanted to pivot a little bit and get back to a topic that's been very pervasive for us on this podcast, which has been related to vaccination and specifically talking about herd immunity. So we've heard a lot about this all over the media in various different forms. Could we just take a second to talk about what herd immunity actually means and what it's going to take for us to get there? Now that we have three vaccines that are approved under EUAs from the FDA, and we're seeing a slow but steady increase in the number of doses being given all across the country. Yeah, so herd immunity, it's not a new thing for sure. By definition, it's essentially when we've reached a critical number of the population being immune to an infectious disease and thereby stopping any transmission from happening. So there's two ways that that can happen. Either you get naturally immune from infection or through vaccination. 
And that critical number of what stops ongoing transmission differs based on the infection or based on the disease. So for example, measles, that critical number is 95% of the population needs to be immune in order to stop disease from spreading. And it has to do in part with the infectivity or the contagiousness of that virus. So a highly contagious virus, um, one person can spread it to lots of people. So you need more people to be immune to stop that spread. And it's never totally 100% because the idea is that once you reach this critical mass, those people that are immune are now protecting those who cannot be immune for whatever reason, who are still susceptible to infection, whether that's they can't get the vaccine or if they get the infection, they die. And what you're trying to do is prevent disease and death from happening. So for COVID specifically, it is a much more deadly disease than influenza. We know that it's certainly more severe than the common cold. And so creating herd immunity from infection alone would not only overwhelm our system or medical system, but it would mean we'd lose a lot of people along the way, a lot more deaths in the process of trying to make a population immune. And so the introduction of vaccination is huge in preventing any more infections, any more deaths, and really stopping transmission. And once we reach that critical mass, we should be able to end the ongoing transmission or this ongoing epidemic. They're estimating now that we think it's along the lines of 70% or more have to be immune. The problem with natural infection in COVID is we don't have a sense yet how long natural immunity lasts we really don't even know that answer for the vaccine yet because it's so soon, but we're hoping to have that information and hope and, and the reason that the recommendation is, even if you've had the infection, you get vaccinated is so that we can induce long lasting immunity. It may be that this is a disease just like influenza that needs yearly vaccination. We don't know that for sure yet. We are hopeful that the vaccine itself provides longer lasting immunity than natural infection. But the point is, the more people we can get immune all at the same time, the quicker we can halt ongoing transmission of disease. We've heard Dr. Fauci and many others talk about, you know, while this rollout process is happening, that we need to be continuing to follow all the mitigation strategies. So socially distancing and wearing masks and being very, very vigilant as we've been for the past year. Do you have a sense of how long you think this might take? I know we heard some things earlier just this week about how we think maybe from the White House, there's a possibility that we have enough vaccine administered by May or, or possibly in June in terms of getting doses out to the entire population. What, when do you think that that's realistically going to happen? So I think with many of these questions, it's always certainly unknown, but I think we can sometimes try to guess that I think masking is going to be here for quite a bit longer. And don't take any of my word as definitive or expert advice, but I would say it's probably going to be at least another year. I kind of anticipated that from the beginning only because as we're seeing, they're starting to develop mutations in the virus that is making it more transmissible, more infectious, perhaps evading current vaccines. And so I think until we know a little bit more about that, we are still in a in very much of a gray zone of knowing how effective this vaccine initiative is going to be. I think a benefit of the masking and distancing and hand washing and everything that's been happening is that we've seen zero influenza infections this year in the entire state of New Hampshire. And so we've essentially completely eliminated yet another epidemic by just doing the interventions, these 
simple preventive interventions. And I do think from a hospital epi perspective, this is perhaps an intervention we will keep forever. It could be that every respiratory season, everyone is masking all the time in order to prevent the deaths from influenza that we usually see every year or hospitalizations or being out of work, employees having to be out of work or children needing to stay home from school. It's just had such a significant impact on disease transmission, even for influenza, as well as other respiratory viruses, that I don't think this is a bad thing. I also think it will probably become some kind of a new norm within healthcare. I mean, I can't imagine at this point going in to see a patient not wearing protection. Give me my mask, give me my shield, my gloves, my gown, whatever I need. I've been loving the masking policy right now. I think this has helped us as an institution, as a population. So I think that's just one thing. I think with regards to the travel and the distancing and all the other stuff that people are getting really tired with, I think there's good reason to continue to keep that up right now. And again, it's because not enough people are immune. There's too many variants circulating. We don't know how they're going to act or what's going to happen. That although I know it's been a year and everyone's getting tired of it, it's the right thing to do to keep all these interventions in place. I think in the next coming months, we will have more information. We'll have more information from the vaccine trials that were being done, as well as actual population level data as we start vaccinating millions more people. And so I do think this is, as always, it's changing day to day, week to week. And what I say now may be totally different than what I say a month from now. So I think time will tell, but for now, I'd say we're in it for a little bit longer. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your crystal ball here, looking ahead and what we might be able to expect for the next while. Wanted to give you an opportunity to share any other messages or information you want to share with our listeners that you ha- haven't yet or feel inspired to do so. Oh, I think I would start by saying a big thank you to all the listeners because I know this hasn't been easy and this has been a trying time for everyone, but I do think all of our hard work is paying off. Infectious disease is always a fun time. You never know what's coming next. And I think our experiences really do prepare us for the next ones. And so getting through it together, we learn so much and it just makes us better for the future. So I'd say keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Antonia. And and thank you for sharing your thoughts about the mitigation strategies. I think I was quoted once when I said that masking is going to be here for a while and I got so much negative comments for saying that this is going to be the norm when we're all looking forward to hang up our masks. Your email box is going to be flooded. (laughs) Well, that's the two of us now. (laughs) I really don't mind it. I don't think I'll ever get on a plane again without a mask. Forget it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've heard from a lot of like at least healthcare professionals whenever the flu thing comes up, right, is that masks are effective and that's why we are not seeing the flu. And, And I think it just, you know, needs to catch on. We've invested so much in masks that might as well use them. Yeah. If not all the time, at least when we know respiratory season's coming, it, I mean, just imagine all those days you don't have to stay home with your kid because they're sick or we don't lose people at work because they're not sick. It's just, why didn't we think of this earlier? Yeah, certainly. It definitely seems like masking is here to stay. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and we will see you around. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Antonio. Thank you. This episode was directed by Jose Mercado. 
produced by me, Amog Karnik. All information on this podcast was meant for medical education and should not be taken as medical advice. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.